0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org.
1: Please take out your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 11 for the reading of this morning's scripture. We'll be reading Romans 11, 1 through 10. And the word of the Lord reads, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and bend their backs forever. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Everett Harrison in his uh, commentary once wrote, the the fact that in that dark hour so many faithful existed despite all appearances provides compelling evidence that God does not permit his own at any time to approach the vanishing point. Has God rejected his people? This is the question that Paul asks as we begin Chapter 11 of this letter to the Romans. And the truth is, this is an important question. Because sometimes from our perspective, from our frame of reference, it might seem that he has. As you look at the world around you, as you watch the news, you see what is being posted on social media, it could seem that God has turned his back on the entire world. I mean... War is growing in, in Europe. Violence is on the rise in Sudan. Russia and China are preparing for you seem to be preparing for an inevitable conflict with the United States. Right? right? And moreover, Christians the world over are hunted down and persecuted. And and preachers in the Western world are being arrested and jailed for proclaiming the gospel in public places. All the while, false teachers or wolves in sheep's clothing have, who call themselves pastors continue to grow in, in popularity. This is in addition to the, the systematic indoctrination of our, our children where the state is corrupting their minds uh, of, the, of our youth with woke ideology that, that is designed to cause them to reject the values that we all hold. The values of our nation, the values of our family and the values of our own faith. I heard it's even somebody asked the question with all that the schools are doing nowadays in the world around us, what do you think would happen if teachers would begin to um, evangelize children and have them baptized without their parents' knowledge of what would happen then? And even worse, children in elementary schools are, are being groomed by the LGBTQ movement Right? At every possible angle, it seems. Grown people who are not their parents are having conversations with children about things that are just completely inappropriate for their age. Not to mention sexuality and pornography are everywhere. It's on television, computers, and even, even your children's phone. And it's, this is in addition to the hatred that's being fostered within our own country by those who have a vested interest in fomenting racial tension between different ethnicities. All right. And not to mention there's a rise on in street violence by younger and younger people. Stores are being looted in broad daylight, and no one can stop them. Gangs of teens are taking over streets and harassing people, and they're, they're assaulting the helpless. And, and even worse, district attorneys who were in charge of enforcing the law are apathetic to crime, and they refuse to persecute, prosecute criminals, especially when it doesn't fit their political agenda. And we're seeing what seems to be more and more unspeakable acts of inhumanity committed by people against each other. I saw a video just yesterday uh, that was recorded by someone's uh, Ring doorbell camera, and it showed a woman walking um, in the neighborhood pulling a wagon, and in the wagon was a bucket which on the surface seems not that unusual. Except the woman had just killed her stepchild and put the child in the bucket and put the bucket in the wagon and drug it all the way to her, ex, to, to her husband's ex-wife's house and placed the bucket with the child in their front lawn and then casually walked away. And as crazy as that sounds, it's really still not that unusual in the world around us. It's amazing the capacity that humans have for cruelty towards one another. And so it seems to be that the world is growing darker from our perspective. And it seems that the kingdom of God is failing and no one wants to hear the message of the gospel anymore unless it's the prosperity gospel or the, 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 the gospel that's, that's affirming of lifestyle that's, of lifestyles that are against the word of God. And because of that, we can begin to feel like Elijah. The prophet, as Paul reminds us in the text. We can begin to feel like Elijah, as if we are the only ones left who truly trust in God. And as we look at the world around us, it can begin to feel hopeless. Has God rejected or turned his back on his people? Has God abandoned the world to its fate? He would be right to do so. But it seems it can be that way. But I want you to understand, though, it only only seems that way at times. Because Paul answers the question and says, absolutely not. God has not abandoned his people. He has not rejected them. You see, this is not a new question for us. It's a question that people have been asking through every generation throughout the centuries. This is a question people have been wrestling with even before Christ Has God turned his back on his people because it seems that God's people have turned their back on him. This was the issue that Elijah faced and this was the issue that Paul was dealing with ever since the beginning of chapter nine. If you remember this letter in Romans chapter one through eight, Paul explains what the gospel is, the blessings the gospel brings, namely peace with God how the gospel works, the freedom that the gospel gives to those who trust in Christ, and the certainty of the hope of those who believe the gospel because those who trust in Christ are safe in the hands of God. The chapters 1 through 8, Paul delivers a master treatise on everything we need to know about the gospel. It's a beautiful expression of, of the gospel itself. And, and really, if you master those first eight chapters, be safe, my brother. <laughs> but if you master those eight chapters, you will have a good handle on what the gospel is. But beginning in chapter 9, Paul begins to address a huge objection to the gospel that really threatens to undermine it. And the, the the essence of the objection is this if the gospel is true, then why do so many Jewish people reject it? If, if the gospel is true, then why do so many Jewish people who were physically descended from Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, the very people who were given the law, right, the law that was written down for them, these people that were part of the Mosaic covenant, why Do they seem so stubborn and why are they rejecting the gospel of Christ? Especially since Paul says that that this gospel, the truth of the gospel was, was not a new idea. It was revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. Why do so many of these people who had the scriptures and who were set apart as a nation reject the gospel that Paul is preaching? Why do so many of them who think themselves to be God's people reject Jesus is the Messiah. Some have, some have said in following questions, if the gospel is true, then the word of God has failed. Right? Because God promised to save his people and the Jews saw themselves as God's people simply because they were Jewish. But Paul made it clear that being one of God's people had nothing to do with nationality or ethnicity or family relationships. Being part of God's family was about God's election and, and his choosing of, and then faith in Christ, that we respond to His calling by faith. It's not about national identity. To that, some would say, well, that would make God unjust and unfair to choose. But Paul makes it clear that God is the creator of all things, and He has the right to have compassion on whom He has compassion. He has the right to harden whom He chooses. And to that, others have said, then if God is sovereign and chooses whom he redeems, then why does he find faults? Or why does he hold us accountable? Because it's God's fault that we're like we are. Then Paul responds, I think, really with one of my favorite quotes of all time Who are you, oh man, to question God? Who are you, lowly sinner, who is in rebellion to a holy, righteous, and just God, to question what he does? And then comes the question: You mean to tell me that the Gentiles, who were not pursuing obedience to the law, who had nothing to do with God, who weren't even looking for a relationship with God, have found righteousness and have been saved, while the Jews, who knew the law, loved the law, did everything in their power to obey the law, that somehow they're not saved? And Paul says absolutely, because he said that Gentiles received the righteousness because they received it by faith, while many Jews pursued a self-righteousness that they tried to earn by their works of the law. Rather than trusting in the promise of God, they tried to earn righteousness by their own efforts. Paul makes it clear then. Paul said that many of these people who felt entitled to God's promises because of their nationality refused to come by faith to Christ. And Paul explains that salvation was really simply a matter of faith. Faith apart from the works of the law. And, and the simple promise of the gospel, as Paul revealed, as we, we talked about, and as we, that we love, is that everyone, what? Who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on Christ by faith, regardless of who they are, regardless of where they've been, regardless of what they've done, every person who calls upon Christ in faith will be saved. That's the simple beauty of the gospel promise. And and Paul explains that all of those who, who call are the ones who believe the gospel. And those who believe the message are the ones who heard the message. And Paul then makes it clear that the Jews have, in fact, heard the message. They just refused to believe it. Why? Because their hearts were hardened to the gospel. In fact, Paul quotes Isaiah, who, who says of Israel, All day long I've held up my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. In other words, the, the Jews had... Ho- had heard the gospel, and and the call of the gospel was open to them, but they refused to come. They rejected the gospel the same way they rejected God throughout the Old Testament. And so the answer to the question, if the gospel is true, then why do the Jews reject it, is simply this. It's because they have hard and impenitent hearts, as Paul told us in Romans chapter 2. They have stubbornly rejected the hope that God freely offered them through Christ because they have hard hearts of stone. In fact, they're the ones who put Christ to death. Do You understand that, right? They were the ones who were persecuting the early church at the time. Many people forget this. We don't think about this. We always think in terms of Roman persecution. The Romans did persecute Christians, but that came later. It was the Jews who were the ones who originally were rounding up Christians and arresting them and killing them. In fact, Paul was one of them. These people's hearts were bitter and hardened to the gospel and they stubbornly kept holding on to the idea that they can become righteous by their own efforts and keep the law. They believed that they had a right to God's salvation because because of who they were. And their ability to keep the traditions. And given that so many Jews had rejected the gospel, it seemed that evangelizing them was really almost a hopeless endeavor. That it was, that they were a lost cause, to which Paul writes, I asked, then, has God rejected his people? Because it looked like that he, he has. In, in fact, the old covenant promised that if the Jews were unfaithful to God, he would bring down all of the curses in the law on them. The thing is, everybody talks about the covenant promises of God to bless Israel, but they forget the promise of the curse for their unfaithfulness. The promise that God would reject them, that God would cut them off, that God would cast them out of the land for their unfaithfulness. It's that time of year with allergies, right? The promise that God would reject them. And when we read the Scriptures, what you find is Israel was continually walking in unfaithfulness. They continually ran from God. They continually blasphemed His name. They continually worshipped idols. They continually did horrific things before Him. They continually turned their back on Him. And again and again, God, through the prophets, and then finally through His own Son, He kept calling them back to repentance. He would call them and turn back. He would even promise He said, if they will turn and call my name, I will hear and heal their land. Remember? But they refused to come. And so then eventually, in actually 70 AD, just a few years after the writing of this letter to the Romans, God poured out his judgment and his wrath upon the nation of Israel as a whole. He used the Roman army as an instrument of God's judgment and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed The temple, just like Jesus promised. And he removed them from the land, just as the Old Testament promised. Sometimes we forget history and don't even think about the fact that that was a cataclysmic event in history at that time. Imagine if a city like London was just wiped off the face of the earth. The impact it would have around the world. God judge them and so it looked like god had turned his back on his old old testament covenant people because they continually rejected the gospel but paul said by no means did god reject his people by no means this is a really strong expression we've encountered before it means perish through thought or or absolutely not or may it never be Paul is saying emphatically as he possibly can, God has not rejected his people. But then how can this be? Because the nation of Israel, by and large, continued to deny Christ, and ultimately, they as a political nation were destroyed. And the center of their religious identity was torn to the ground to the point they had to reinvent their faith without the temple. Most people don't realize that modern-day Judaism is is not the same as it was before the, the temple was destroyed. They've had to rethink how they relate to God because the, the sacrifice that happened there was central to their theology. So how can people who say God has not rejected His people when it seemed that everywhere you look, everyone was unfaithful to God and God poured out His judgment on them? Well, notice how Paul answers the question. He says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is basically saying, I am an example of how God has not rejected his people. Paul begins with his own testimony, right? I know for a fact that God has not rejected his people because I'm one of them. I'm one of those Jews who seemed beyond redemption. I'm one of those Jews who, who, who was all about keeping the law. I was one of those Jews who rejected Christ and the gospel. I was one of those Jews who was persecuting Christians. I was consenting to their death. I, like so many people, would seem to be a hopeless cause. In fact, remember when when God told Ananias to go lay his hands on him, what's his first words? He goes, wait a minute, that dude's hurting people. You want me to go to him? It seemed like... like He was someone God had rejected because he rejected Christ. But Paul says he didn't reject me. He instead changed my heart. He changed my heart and I heard the gospel and believed. And now I'm redeemed and more than that, I'm I'm on a mission defending the gospel that I once despised. Paul's saying I'm living proof that God has not rejected his people even when it looks impossible. This right here is a lesson that we all need to take to heart. All of us, as we live on mission for Christ, because let's be honest, there will be times when it will seem like sharing the gospel with someone is a hopeless, pointless, ridiculous endeavor. People who are not just ambivalent, but are actually hostile to your faith. People will say things, don't you dare pray to your God for me. I've had people I'd love say that to me. Huh? I don't want to hear about your Jesus. You religious people are all the same. You're just trying to, to you're just trying to push your beliefs on everyone. Right? Why can't you just fill in the blank? And, and, and if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know what I'm saying. Right? There are people in your life that seem so hardened to Christ that it seems that they will never change. I remember when my wife used to go places with some of her family members and she would listen to worship music and you should just see the look of disdain on their faces. But God has not rejected His people. And God can and does take people with the hardest of hearts and transform them and gives them a heart of flesh and when that happens, when they hear the gospel, they receive it with great joy and believe and prove that they are indeed one of His children. It's a miracle that He works. And I want you to understand, my life is an example of this exact phenomenon. This is, this is my story. I rejected Christ and the gospel. I hated, I despised Christianity. I mocked and berated Christians for their faith, and I believed that Christians were unintelligent and superstitious people. Weak-minded is how I would put it. And I loved my sin, and I had no desire for God, and I fancied myself as, as an atheist, and I wanted everybody that I met to know it. I felt morally and intellectually superior. The smugness of atheists today would bother me except... I see myself in them, right? And there are probably people around me in that point in my life who thought, this guy is hopeless. There's no way he's ever going to believe the gospel. There's no way he's ever going to turn to Christ. He has rejected God, and God has rejected him. But then God used my circumstances and my unborn son and my sinful decisions to change... He used those things and changed my heart. God changed my heart. And, it, and and by the way, against my will. Let's just be honest about that. Because I wasn't looking for God. I wasn't asking for Him. I didn't even have any thoughts of Him. But He changed my heart so that I could see the horrific nature of my sin and what it would cost. And when I And then in that new state, I heard the glorious news of the gospel, And I believed and I was saved. And by the way, my son was spared. God has not rejected me even though I was quick to reject him. God had not rejected me because he had not rejected his people. Even when it seems all hope is lost from our human perspective. Now, I know that Paul is talking about ethnic Israel here. And so Paul explains that he himself was a Jew amongst the na- among the nation that God had set aside to re- represent him to the world, right? That's what Israel was supposed to be, the, 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 the pastor to the nation. See, they were supposed to show the world who God was. And like many Jews, Paul seemed to be a hopeless cause because of his initial re- rejection of Christ. But God redeemed him anyway. And then he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And this is, again, is something important, something that that Paul has already been talking about. But we need to keep in mind because Paul, when he says foreknew, he's not talking about passive foreknowledge like, hey, I kind of knew them. He's talking about foreknowledge in a sense of divine election. He's talking about God's sovereignty to redeem whom he would redeem. He knew them because he foreordained to redeem them. God chose to have compassion on them. God, by the counsel of his own will in eternity past, foreknew who would be his people. And being one of God's people and being part of his family has never been about ethnicity or nationality or family relationships, as Paul said in Romans chapter 9. It's about God's grace and our response to that grace in faith. And Paul says, God has not rejected his people he foreknew, especially those among the nation of Israel. The nation, the nation that had repeatedly rejected him, God still had a people among them. Right? And then he proves what he's saying here by appealing to the Old Testament scripture, specifically the story of Elijah, the prophet. In 1 Kings 16, we find a man named King Ahab. King Ahab was the king of the nation of Israel, not of Judah, because there was a divided kingdom at this point, right? The king Ahab was a blasphemous man, evil, and, and, and the scriptures even say that he was worse than anyone before him. That's a pretty pretty bad description. I mean, if the Bible says you were worse than anyone before you, that's, that's saying something. He rejected God in every way, and he led the nation of Israel away from God. And God sent Elijah to confront him and the nation of Israel, and he does. And Elijah ends up confronting the prophets of of Baal, right, a false god that Israel had become in love with and were worshiping. And he challenged them to prove that their god was real by their powers. And and if you remember the story in in 1 Kings 18, Elijah um, has the prophets of Baal build an altar to their god, and, and he built one just like it to 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 the God of Israel, Yahweh. And he told them to put wood on the altar and to sacrifice a bull on that. And then he said, pray to your God, right? That he would consume this offering. That fire would come down from heaven, right? And they did, they began to pray and nothing happened. And they prayed some more and nothing happened. They began to scream and nothing happened. They began to cut themselves. Nothing happened. And then... This is why, by the way, I just want you to know that I don't think that the Bible's against sarcasm, okay? Because Elijah's like, well, wait a minute. Huh. Where's your God, huh? Maybe he's sleeping, huh? Maybe he's indisposed, doing something, you know? And then suddenly he's like, why don't you scream louder? Why don't you pray harder? And they did. And guess what? Nothing happened. And then... He takes water and he pours it all over the altar he built. And he pours it on the sacrifice and he pours it on the wood and he digs a trench around the altar. right, And he pours enough water that it fills it up like a little moat. Right? Making, setting it on fire even harder than what the other circumstance was. And then he begins to pray to God. And he, he says, beginning in verse 36, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, or Yahweh. Answer me that this, will, that this people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then in verse 38 it says, Then fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust. And it says they looked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, or Yahweh, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And then after Elijah, he, he orders the prophets of Baal to be seized, and then he has them put to death. Now, this obviously enraged Ahab and his wife Jezebel, and so they wanted to kill him. And Elijah then had to run for his life. And he, at one point, began to feel like that all of Israel had basically gone astray from God and that it was hopeless and that he was really the only believer left in Israel. And Paul points this out in the story when, when, when it all seems like that God has forsaken his people He says, Do you not know the scriptures say of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. I want you to notice Paul says that Elijah appeals against Israel. Why does he plead his case against the nation? Because because it was the king and the nation itself who had turned their backs on God and it was the king and the nation itself that were murdering God's prophets. All right these were the Israelites. These are the people that God had selected and chosen out. They were killing God's prophets. And they had abandoned the worship of the one true God and so it seemed to be hopeless for Israel. And because of that Elijah said I'm the only true unbeliever left. But what, is it, what is it, but what is God's reply to him? Paul asks. God's reply is I have kept myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to, to Baal. In other words, I have 7,000 people who belong to me that I have not rejected. 7,000 people that I have chosen. 7,000 people as a remnant in Israel. You think it's all lost, and I'm telling you it's not. You see, even when the entire nation rejected God as a whole, God had always had a remnant that he preserved. In fact, if you remember, Paul quoted in Romans chapter 9, Isaiah, if the Lord of hosts left us no offspring, we'd become like Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, if God didn't spare some of us by his grace from his judgment, we would have been wiped out a long time ago. You see, no matter how bad Israel became and how unfaithful they were to God as a nation and as a people, God always, by His grace, preserved a remnant who were never rejected. And Paul says, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. A remnant in among the Jews, among whom Paul was one of them. Right? But notice Paul says that they were chosen by grace. And then he adds, but if it's by grace, if, but if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. This is important for us because, because as Christians today, because of, first of all, the only way a person gets saved, the only way a person comes to, to saving understanding of God is by grace through faith apart from works. And 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 we say this a lot, but I'm going to tell you right now: the the natural tendency of religious people is towards legalism. It is towards earning righteousness. It's towards I got to do something for God, right? And the emphasis that we see again and again in the scriptures is: it is by grace apart from works. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're an American or what other nationality you might be. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, or rich or poor, or educated or uneducated. There is only one way to salvation, and that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And, and by the way, that's exactly why that we have the medallions on the back wall that we do, that Brother Robert was so kind to create for us. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So it is never, ever, 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 ever about ethnicity, ethnicity, or nationality, or how sincere a person might think that they are, or, or how hard a person tries to keep the law, or anything that man can bring to the table. In fact, Spurgeon, I think, says it so well. He says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Right? I mean, if, if there's a quote from Spurgeon that's worth remembering, that's it. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. God saves who he does by his grace and grace alone. And the second reason why this is important for us to keep in mind is because there is a movement in Christianity that falsely believes that somehow, some way, that being Jewish ethnically makes a person one of God's people. Even... Today, there, is, there, there will be Christians who will say that, that Jewish people who are openly and passionately rejecting God and spurning His grace, Christians will say these people collectively are God's chosen people. There are some who even so far, go to far to say that, that they're so invested in the idea that they literally believe that all Jewish people, that all Jewish people who've ever lived somehow, somewhere will be saved because of their Jewish identity. And they believe that that the modern nation of Israel can never do anything wrong, that they're not capable of, of, of atrocities themselves, and that somehow God loves them more than he loves everyone else. Even though the vast majority of Jews in Israel today despise Christ. They're offended when the gospel is presented. In fact, I don't know if you realize, but that there is a group of devout Jews in the legislature in Israel that are trying to make proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ illegal in Israel. And they are trying to make it illegal for someone to help someone convert to the Christian faith. They're talking about jail time for helping someone come to faith in Christ. And there's a growing anti-Christian sentiment in Israel, including violence towards Christians on the streets. It seems like history... It's repeating itself. And and many people believe that 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 all of these people will be saved, right? And that and they will call them brothers as they're part of the same family of God, but they're not. Notice what Paul says here. I want you to hear what Paul's words were. Even then, what then? he says. And then he says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Israel, as a nation, failed to obtain the righteousness required to have relationship with God. They failed because they didn't pursue it by faith, as Paul has made clear. The elect, he says, obtained it. The elect obtained it. But notice, I want you to notice this, but the rest were, what? What does he say? Hardened, as it was written. And then he appeals to the Old Testament and says, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. David says, let their table become a snare and a trap or the blessings that they enjoy. Let them become something that's harmful to them, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. The nation of Israel as an ethnic identity, as a political nation, failed to obtain righteousness. But within that nation, God had a remnant that were preserved by God's sovereign grace. But the rest were hardened, as Paul says. And then he quotes the Old Testament again to prove his point. The fact is the vast majority of Jews then and today are lost. They are not God's people because of their ethnicity. They are not God's people because they have a biology that makes them related to Abraham. Again, Paul has said, not all Israel is Israel. And as Paul has even said elsewhere, that the children of Abraham are those who were children by what? By faith. And so this notion that the vast majority of Jews today, even those gathered as the nation, the new nation of Israel, that the notion that they have become some elite group of people in the eyes of God is a false teaching because God has one family. It is His elect. And yes, it begins with the nation of Israel. And they are the roots, as Paul will explain later in this same chapter. But it's spread to the entire world. God has an elect people in every nation, every tribe and tongue. And the elect is the church, his ecclesia, made up of believers in the Old and New Testament. And just because a person is Jewish doesn't mean they're one of God's people. Because the vast majority of Jewish people then and still today like so many other people and so many other ethnicities, have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you reject Christ, you are still by nature a child of wrath. But again, knows Paul said, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And then he asks, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were pardoned. The thing that we need to keep in mind is, is, is now, just like then, God still has a remnant in Israel. And the reason why this is important is because there are many people who call themselves Christians who make the opposite mistake with respect to Jews and the nation of Israel. There are people who think that Jews today in the nation of Israel have been completely rejected by God and they see them as the enemy of the Christian faith and, and they right, are right now anti-Semitic towards them. The idea that Christians can be anti-Semitic is just, see, it's just impossible to fit in my head, but it exists in the world around us. Because they rightly see God's judgment was poured out on the nation of Israel in the Old Covenant, but they wrongly assume that God has completely rejected all of them. God has not completely rejected them. God has always had a remnant. In fact, I firmly believe that God has a plan for the nation of Israel today. I believe that it includes a revival like we've never seen before. I believe that there's a time that's going to come when many people who are Jewish will have their hearts opened by God and they will hear the gospel and they will believe and the Spirit of God will descend upon them. Now, I don't believe that all Jews will be saved, but I believe that there is a large remnant that will. Like I believe that there's a time coming when many people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will come to faith as the church, by the grace of God, is victorious and its mission the mission that God gave us. Remember what, he, what did what did Jesus say before he left? Make disciples of all the nations. But the fact is there has always been and will continue to be a remnant among the Jews. Now, why is that important to us? Why is it important to us that there is a remnant? It's important because the word of God assures us Let's pray that he's among the the elect, right? It's important because the the word of God assures us that there are people out in the world who God has foreknown who were his people. And there are people all around us who were Jewish and Gentile, who, who might seem to us in our human eyes to be hopeless, who were in fact one of God's children. There are people within this community that God has ordained to be his people. And the thing is that we don't know who they are or how many of them there are. All that we know is that they're there. By the way, it's not for us to know. Right? Someone was asking Charles Spurgeon about the elect. He says, if the elect had a yellow stripe on their back, I would just lift up their shirt and preach the gospel to them. But until that happens, I'll just preach the gospel to everyone. All we need to know is that they're out there, that God has not rejected His people, and God has saved us for the purpose of reaching them with the gospel. Remember, we spent some time talking about that last week, that you were not saved for you. You were saved for God's glory, and that is to be on mission for Him. And how do we do that? Well, we talked about it last week. We do that by sowing the seed and sharing the gospel with everyone we come in contact with by loving the people and showing the love of Christ with them in our actions and our attitudes and praying that God would change their hearts like he did for Paul, like he did for me, like he did for you. And then never, ever giving up. We never give up knowing that there is a remnant of God that has been foreordained to be redeemed. There are people around us that God has not rejected. And if we will do our part God is faithful to do His part even when it seems like the whole world around us is getting darker. Even when it seems that no one will ever believe the gospel we preach. The Word of God promises that we do not labor in vain. It's a promise of of God. Because God has not rejected His people. So so then what do we do with this? Right. First of all, if you're not in Christ, if you've not put your faith in Christ, today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel. Christ died to redeem you. And if you are feeling the conviction of your sin, if you're feeling a growing desire to know him and how to be saved, that is evidence that God has not rejected you and he is calling you to come. And the promise is, if you will call upon the name of the Lord, it's a promise, if you will call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Today's the day of salvation. Repent and believe the gospel. Secondly, we must theologically commit ourselves to avoiding the common pitfalls regarding the nation of Israel that so many people fall into. We must reject both hyper-Zionism that is prevalent amongst some churches and reject anti-Semitism that's prevalent amongst other ones the fact is, God did create a political nation of Israel. And out of that nation came the promise and the fulfillment of that promise, which is Christ. And God's elect in Israel are the root of the tree and the Gentiles and many other nations have been grafted in, creating this unified family of God. One true family that were foreknown and elected in eternity past. And this family is his church, which includes believers from Adam to the present time. God the Father ordained the plan of their redemption. Christ came into the world to secure that redemption through his life, death, and resurrection. And then the Holy Spirit applies that redemption to them and adopts them into his family. That's God's people. And so the Jews today are not a special class of people who have a unique claim upon God, but they are a people group that God loves and has a plan for, and there is an elect people among them that we must endeavor to reach with the gospel. Third, we must recognize that we have a frame of reference that shapes how we see the world. I can't emphasize this enough. There are problems with our frame of reference at times. Because sometimes our frame of reference doesn't allow us to see reality. And you know how I know that our frame of reference distorts reality? It's because you recognize it in the generation that follows you. Right? When you look at this new generation that, that finds it hard just to get up in the morning and go work 30 hours a week, you're like, what is the world's wrong with you? Right? right? We understand that their world and the way that they see the world is different because they grew up in a different way. Now, I mention this because because we live at a time when many people assume that things are worse than they ever have been in history and that somehow the world is just completely falling apart at the seams. But is this really true? I I mean, we certainly can see a lot of evil in the world, right? But there has always been evil in the world. Cain and Abel, right, from the very beginning, And we see that that people do horrific things to each other, but guess what? People have always done horrific things to one another. Just look at the cross. I I mean, think about the person who thought that up. What a horrible way to torture someone to death as they suffocate for hours and hours and hours And yes, we see a growing perversity and sexual immorality around us, but if you study history, what you'll find is cultures like Rome and Greece were so depraved (laughs) that it might even make people at pride parades blush today. Right? I think the world feels worse because it's the only world we've ever known. And the technology that we have shows us more of the ugliness in the world around us. And guess what gets our attention more than anything else? The ugliness and the bad news. Right. The truth is, for all the evil that's out there, and there is a lot. I want you to hear me. There is a lot, but there's also a lot of good. I mean, today people live longer than they have in, in, in many millennia. And, and there are few people today in abject poverty than there ever has been in any point in history. That's quantifiable, by the way. Right? The abject poverty has been demonstrably reduced around the world. And because of that, there are few people today who are starving to death. Just a fact. And fewer people who die of preventable diseases. People still do die of those things, but fewer do so. And there are more people today who live in freedom than ever before. Ever before in all of history. And not to mention, there are more women today in the world who experience equality than, than any other point in history. I mean, really this idea that women are equal to men is, a, is a, a, a new idea that was really brought about by the Christian church. And children who were once seen as property and a liability are loved and cared for in ways never seen before. And, and people are more literate in the world than they ever have been. The infant mortality rate is lower than it ever has been. People today everywhere have more leisure time than they ever have at any point in their life. And people have ways to be connected to to the people they love more than they ever have. I I just want you to know, I'm an introvert and I'm a person who, like, if you're not in my circle, it's easy for me to kind of get disconnected from you just because I'm busy. But social media has allowed me to stay connected to a lot more people that I care about and be involved in their lives. And you have too. Social media does have its evils, don't get me wrong, right? But there are those benefits. And I can go on and on. And I'm not saying that we don't face incredible problems because we do face some incredible problems. This whole thing with with the potential, what happens with AI is like really unnerving, right? But but every generation in all of history has had major problems to deal with too. But we live at a time of great blessing as well. And I want you to understand the, the vast majority of the blessing, if you look at history and you look at how The church has moved throughout the world. What you will find is this blessing has followed the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the entire world. Everywhere the gospel has been proclaimed and embraced, the world has gotten noticeably better. It's just a fact. Everywhere the gospel has been proclaimed, people enjoy more freedom, more life. And I mention this because so many people think today that the message of the gospel, that, that is—is come to Jesus because everything is hopeless and it's all gonna burn, it's all falling apart. Everywhere, the church is going to fail its mission and everything is going to fall apart. So you better get saved now before that happens. But that's really not the message of the gospel. The message is come to Jesus because, first of all, he's your only hope, right? But also he is the hope of the entire world. And when you come to Jesus, not only will he give you life, he will give you a purpose, and that purpose is to join him on his mission to bring hope to the rest of the world. Now, I'm not saying this, saying things can't go really wrong in a hurry, And I'm not saying that Christ can't return at any moment. What I'm saying is oftentimes our perspective of what the world is, this idea that everything's hopelessly falling apart, is just that, a perspective of where we stand in time. And that perspective can blind us of the reality that God still is at work in the world and He is in the business of saving His people. And God's church is growing, and His kingdom is expanding. Remember, what is what did Paul say in the beginning of the letter? The gospel is the power of God to save those who believe. That's not a little bit of power. That's infinite power. You understand that, right? We're not talking about the power of a nation or the power of man. We're talking about the power of the God who spoke the universe into existence. The power of God is in the gospel to save those who believe and it's the power of God to change the world for good. And there is a remnant of God's people out there in the world ready to hear the gospel and we are all called to be a part of that mission to bring that hope to them. In fact, I want you to just just close your eyes for a moment and just visualize with me for a second. (laughs) What would the world look like if everyone in this room were to take seriously the admonition to sow the seed, to love the people, and to pray for God to change their hearts and never give up? How would that radically transform? If the gospel is the power of God for salvation, how would that transform our entire community? if we were to share the hope of Christ with everyone and we were to love our neighbors the way Christ calls us to love them, and if we prayed every day for people to come to faith and continue to do that until until we finally go home to be with Jesus, how would that radically change our community? You can open your eyes now. What would happen if all the churches in our community joined us in that? And what would happen if all the churches in California did that? How would that change the world? You see, I believe what the Bible says, that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Nothing can prevent us from doing the mission that God has called us to do. So let us not get caught up in the hopelessness that everyone sees around us and let us believe what the Bible says about the fact that there is a remnant of people all around us that God has set aside. And these people are his people even when it seems completely impossible to us because God has not rejected his people. Now, before I wrap up, I promised last week, we talked about sharing the gospel with the acronym, the uh the acrostic gospel. I promised last week I would show you another way to share the gospel with those around you. And that's called the Romans Road. And I passed out a sheet. Hopefully you guys got it if you didn't. There are plenty at the back table. But the Romans Road is the way to share the gospel um, with the scriptures from the letter to the Romans. And by the way, we've covered every one of these scriptures in, in, in uh, several sermons Um, And so it's really a very simple process in how to share the the hope of Christ with people. And you begin with Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23 makes it really clear what the problem is, right? For all have sinned and and have fallen short of the glory of God, right? That's where we start, right? That we have all sinned. We have all done things that are displeasing to God, and there's no one who's innocent. Romans three. 10 through 18 actually gives a great detailed picture of what that sin looks like in our lives right So the first scripture is Romans 3:23. The second scripture is Romans 6:23 which teaches us about the consequence of sin and it tells us that the wages of sin is death. The punishment of sin that we have earned for our sin is death. not physical death but eternal death. right And then the third verse in the Romans road is is, is salvation. And that picks up in the middle of Romans 3.23. It's kind of convenient. You go from the really bad news to the good news. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. In fact, Romans 5.8 declares, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the truth that we proclaim to people, that Jesus Christ died to save us, Jesus Death paid the price of our sins, and His resurrection proves that God accepted Jesus' death on our behalf. The fourth scripture on the Romans' road to salvation is Romans 10.9, which we talked about recently, right? That if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the declaration of, of the gospel, that if you will put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Because Jesus' <laughs> death on our behalf and all, right, because of what he did, all we have to do is believe in him, trusting his death as a payment for our sins, and we will be saved. As we said, Romans ten thirteen says it again, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's that simple. Jesus died to pay the penalty of your sin to rescue you from eternal death salvation, the forgiveness of your sins, is available to anyone who trusts in Christ as Savior. And then the final aspect of the Romans' road (coughs) to salvation is the result of salvation. Romans 5.1 has this wonderful message. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, we have a relationship of peace with God. And Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus' death on our behalf, we will never be condemned for our sins. And finally, is the precious promise that I repeat over and over again. Romans 8.38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons... Neither the present nor the future nor anything, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That right there, brothers and sisters, is a very simple, clear, concise way to share the gospel in the book of Romans because God has not rejected his people. So let us therefore go out and do our part to bring them